What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and we are answering all of our community questions for the entire month of October on our Monday shows. So normally that we do, you know, on our Friday shows, we do the financial health assessments and Monday we have certain topics that we go through. But this month, because I've received so many questions over the past few months that it's backlog, and I want to make sure that I'm answering those on the show for you guys. So the entire month is exactly that. If you want to be on the show, have your question asked, you don't have to tell me your name. In fact, two people that called in did not mention their names, two did. You can absolutely do this anonymously, but I'd really like it if you called in your question versus emailed it to me. And you can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash question. And you're going to see by the four questions that we're going to be answering in today's show, it's not that bad. You can just literally click record, record your question. It comes directly to me and I'm going to make sure that I try to answer it on the show. So let's jump in and hang out with four of you from our community and answer your questions. Hi, my name is Daniel and I'm a third year medical student. I just got into your podcast a few months ago and really appreciate what you do and look forward to reading your book, which I just purchased. I have three questions for you that might have been answered in an earlier podcasts, but hopefully you can still address. The first is about an investment strategy. I read JL Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth, and have invested whatever leftover money my wife and I have accumulated over the past couple of years into 95% VTSAX and 5% VBTLX. As I'm new to investing, it has been hard to find a good counter argument to this investment strategy. What are the downsides to this strategy and in what circumstances is this strategy not advisable? My second question is about financial advisors. Right now, I cannot afford to hire anyone, but as I go through residency and eventually become an attending, I will be able to afford one and can use the help for big financial and life decisions as neither me nor my wife are in business fields. I have heard that a large part of financial advisors is to protect your money from yourself. I am someone who is not very impulsive and very low maintenance, not a large spender. If I have an investment strategy, I will stick to it. I have not touched my investments since this epidemic started. I have no urge to. So I was wondering, what else can top-notch fee-based financial advisors like yourself provide for people like me? Lastly, at the medical student stage, what financial questions should I be thinking about as I transition into residency? Hey, Daniel, thanks so much for calling in your question. Really appreciate it. And I'll give the disclaimer here that this is not financial planning advice. This is not a specific investment advice. This is entertainment purposes only, right? Make compliance happy here. But I'm so happy that you bought the book and that you're working through it. And the financial residency book, honestly, it was written by my wife and I, was here really to help you guys build out the basics of a financial plan. And there's tons of templates inside there. So you can actually get through the book pretty quickly if you wanted to speed read through it. But it would kind of defeat the whole purpose because what I want you to do is to be thinking differently and actually take those templates and part of that free course that I have that goes along with it to give you those templates to put the effort in because it's going to result in a financial plan that's unique to you. And it will honestly cover you through all of your training and probably even a little bit into your early career, new attending life. So you can get the book by going to Amazon directly or go to financialresidency.com slash book. But Daniel, you had three really good questions and I want to make sure that I answer them as we go through this. So right now, your first question is really around the downsides of passive investing and specifically into two specific securities. So I can't give you advice on how those securities would flow and what would make sense to you because I don't know anything really about you or your risk tolerance. 
but I would actually be more concerned with your risk tolerance than I would about those two funds. You're investing at very aggressive, which obviously in your early career and being younger, you can afford to take that risk. But I would honestly look at it and say, are you comfortable with that risk? And does that make sense for you guys moving forward? If it does, fantastic. There are way more downsides to changing investment strategy and trying to pick individual stocks or going with active investments that are trying to beat the market or whatever index they're trying to compare themselves to, that if you were to buy just those two, that's a fantastic strategy. But again, coming back to the risk tolerance and how does that work for you? It's really a, an individual choice. Now, the total stock market, and this is, I'd say, the only downside to this two-fund portfolio, has about 3,500 stocks. And almost 30% of the entire fund is allocated to tech versus oil and gas that has only 2% or basic materials, which is 2%. So it's very, very slanted towards technology. And to further prove that point, because when you look at investing and passive investing in the strategy, the idea is to be fully diversified across the market and to pay hopefully the lowest amount in fees absolutely as possible. If we look and take that highly diversified piece, yes, it has 3,500 stocks in it, but the biggest five stocks, the biggest five that they own inside of the total stock market is Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and Alphabet, which is Google. And of those five, 20% of the entire fund is just those five stocks. If you think about it, for every $100 you invest, right, thinking that, hey, I'm investing, there's 3,500 stocks in this, I'm being very diversified across the board. For every $100 you invest, $20 goes into just five of those 3,500 stocks. So it doesn't sound very diversified, but there's not a ton of options available to you if you don't want to complicate the portfolio and you don't want to break things down a bit. I am a complete fan of passive investing and highly diversified, low-cost index funds. And if we're going to just blanket the statement, I think it, there's not a real big downside to this strategy. But if you dig deeper and as you start going a little bit more complex with the portfolio and the allocation and what you're doing, I would say that doesn't sound extremely diversified to me to have $20 of every $100 I invest go to five companies when in reality there's 3,500 stocks in the entire total stock market fund. The second part of your question is around financial advisors. And you mentioned protecting your money from yourself and you have no issues with that, which is fantastic. That might change as you get older and you have more money right now. And I'm not saying this is bad, but let's say you had $10,000. The decision making around $10,000 and $100,000 might not differ a lot, but the difference between $10,000 and a million dollars might differ a lot, even though it shouldn't. And I'm not saying that everyone needs a planner by any means whatsoever. If that was the case, I wouldn't have written a book for DIY type people. I wouldn't offer the financial fellowship to those that are trying to DIY, but don't want to do it by themselves. All right. That's that 12 week course that I pushed through that has six live calls with me. And at the end, everyone has a fully built financial plan. If anyone's interested, I know I've talked about on the show, but you can check out financialfellowship.com. And our next fellowship is actually opening up in January of 2021. But one of the things that you mentioned was fee-based advisors. And I want to make sure we're very clear because this gets interchanged. It's very easy and understandable why it gets interchanged. 
most people make the mistake saying that their fee-based planners is what they're looking for, but that is not what you're looking for. You'd be looking for a fee-only financial planner. Fee-based planners can sell products and they can earn kickbacks or commissions from the products they're selling. So think of if you went to an advisor and they're able to sell you insurance. Easiest one to know. They can sell you insurance. They're fee-based. NAFA did a study for us and it was greater than 97% of anyone who calls himself a financial advisor or financial planner is a fee-based planner. That is a very bad thing because there are lots of conflicts of interest with fee-based planners. And I have lots of friends that are fee-based planners that sell insurance and transact in insurance and they're good people. The compensation model sucks and it's just not aligned with what their clients should be looking for. And that is a fee-only financial planner which means that the only money that a fee-only financial planner can earn is what's in the signed client agreement. should be very black and white. And in fact, it shouldn't scale on a percentage of assets and it should be listed, honestly, right out there in front to the public on their website. It shouldn't be scaling based on complexity or some other crap that they're going to pitch you. It should be just on the website, right? So if you go to physicianwellservices.com, my financial planning firm with Casey, you know, who's on our, our Friday shows, it'll tell you right there. Oh, we have a flat fee pricing of $500 a month. It's simple. It's right there. There's no guesswork. And that's the type of planner that, granted, I'm biased on this, but I built the entire financial planning firm as if my wife Taylor was on the other side. What do I want her to experience? That is what I would want anyone to experience, is to be able to know that it's a fixed flat fee. It doesn't scale based on investments. And the protect yourself from protect your money from yourself concept really comes back to everyone thinks working with a financial planner is just about how much money you have to invest in your investments when that's the furthest from the truth. I always look at it as I'm the PCP for your finances and investments are just one piece of the pie. There's cash flow planning. There's honestly just getting organized. There's the insurance and running the analysis, making sure things get set up. Obviously, there's the investments, there's the estate planning, there's so many other things that go into financial planning. And we take it a step further even and talk more about the behavioral parts of money and having a healthier relationship with money. That wasn't clear by the podcast, but those are big things to us. But investments are just one piece of the pie. So in short, not everyone needs a planner, but if you do, find a fee-only planner that has a fixed flat fee. And if you're a physician, we would love to work with any of you at Physician Well Services if you are looking for a financial planner. Your last question, what should you be thinking about as you transition into residency? One, congratulations, it's another milestone in your career, which is fantastic, but you won't be sleeping, of course. But one of the things, I think I have a few things that I would be thinking about. One is just understanding your student debt, right? What field or special are you going into? Is it statistically likely that you will be going or not going for PSLF? Example would be if you're going to go into emergency medicine, odds are very low chance that you are going to be working for a nonprofit. It's just how emergency medicine is built that you will be not working. You'll be working for a private employer and you will not be able to go for public service loan forgiveness. If you know that going in, that is going to dictate your student debt plan. But if you said, hey, look, I know that I'm going into academics. I know that is the path I want to go. And odds are PSLF is going to be an option. You're going to have a very different outlook on your student debt, which will actually cascade into other things like your cash flow plans and your investments and all that stuff. The second piece I'd be thinking about 
is actually building and implementing a cash flow plan or the dreaded B word, right? A budget. And I don't care what the numbers are in training. I'm more worried about and thinking about the principles and building a better relationship that you have with money and how money's coming in and how it's going out. And the sooner you can understand and work through that and realize that a budget or a cash flow plan isn't going to be restrictive and that it's going to help you, that in the long term, when you actually are earning the money that you are honestly worth and should be earning from the start, you're not going to blow it or squander it or fill this huge need to go off and spend a whole bunch of money because you've deprived yourself through all your training. The last thing I would probably look at is to make sure that you have the appropriate insurance coverage. And there's the new and practice disability programs that most of these insurance companies, the big five are providing. And I would make sure that you either have one of those policies in place during training, or if your program offers and have teamed up with one of the insurance companies to offer a GSI or guaranteed standard issue plan, that is likely going to be the best option for you. It would be A little bit higher on the critical list if you are a female physician, because a GSI plan for female physicians is like a slam dunk every single time, because unfortunately, females are more likely to go off on a disability claim than males. Males, we draw the short stick, we die earlier, so our term insurance coverage is going to be more expensive. But hopefully, Daniel, that answers your questions. Those are three fantastic questions, and thank you so much for being a part of our community and calling those in. All right, our next question comes from someone who remained anonymous, but had a great question that I'm excited to answer on air. So let's hear it. Hey, Ryan, question regarding savings rates. You repeatedly mentioned budgeting 25% of our take-home pay towards increasing net worth. My question is, what percentage of total pay do you recommend allocating towards 401k equivalent retirement accounts for two married interns who are not aggressively paying down debt? before saving that 25% of take-home pay. Unfortunately, maxing out these accounts with 38,000 in yearly contributions on top of saving 25% of take-home pay seems like an unreasonable strain on lifestyle. What would be a good middle ground to shoot for? We are currently saving 20% of total earnings, including matching contributions into 401k type accounts and 7% of take-home pay into a high yield savings emergency fund. Thanks, Ryan. Well, that was a great question. And Casey and I talk a lot about the 50-25-25 strategy, which is that 50% of your take-home pay goes to fixed expenses, 25% of your take-home pay goes to variable costs. And the other 25%, which is what you're talking about here, is the pay yourself first or to anything that increases your net worth positively. Now, I will tell you, one, that based on where you're in your career, This is not the advice that is specific to you that I'm directly relating this to. One, personal finance is personal, but it's not meant for you at this stage. Residency, in my mind, and when we went through it, was all about survival and building good financial habits. I'm not saying that as a resident, not only do you have to be maxing all your workplace retirement accounts out, plus saving 25%, because literally you'd have no money at that point. But most residents aren't even thinking about investing. Heck, some of them, in the ones even that went to went to training with my wife, thought the 403B was a scam. So the exact opposite of what you're trying to do is what most of your peers are, are doing. They're not thinking about it. They're putting their loans into deferment or forbearance. Granted, nationally, we have that going on now for everyone. But without that, they were doing that. They weren't saving. They were spending everything. So the fact that you're already trying to take advantage of these things, you're ahead of the game. 
But a good middle ground to shoot for, because that's what your question is really asking, is I would say if you can contribute to get the match, and Roth is likely going to be your best option, but if you both have student debt or you're trying to figure out if one goes for student debt, PSLF, with their student debt or not, you're, you're going to have to run the numbers, but likely Roth is going to be your best option. If you can then not only do that, but rid yourself of any consumer debt, if you have it. And if you do realize, why do you have it? Is it, are you living within your means or you having to travel around and try to figure out interviews or all that will come, but figuring out if you don't have consumer debt, awesome. Make sure you don't use the next little bit of money to build up an emergency fund. And once that's built up, then continue putting money into your employer plans until it's maxed. And you probably won't be able to max it. And that's okay. Most people are not going to even be close to what you're trying to do. So realize that what you're already putting in place is awesome. The 25% of your take-home pay is really meant for, okay, now you have the big attending paychecks that are coming and you're getting paid what you're worth. How do you live off of the increased income? And most people are just going to spend all of it. And that's not what we want you to do. But if you get past the point of, hey, you both have maxed out your employer plans, you're absolutely crushing the game. And anything else would go into like IRAs. Again, likely Roth would be your best option, but you'd have to run the numbers based on your guys' student debt. But I love the question and I am happy that you asked it because other people in the community are probably thinking that. And again, I'll come back to residency is about survival and building good financial habits. All right, we've got an interesting next question around student debt, so let's hear it. I've heard a lot recently about student loan forgiveness and the risk you take of working a long time in underserved areas only to potentially not have your loans paid off at the end of it. Is that a real risk, and is it worth taking? What should I be looking for when deciding to use student loan forgiveness? Okay, so I basically think, first, thank you so much for calling this in. I think this is always going to be a hot topic until we start seeing massive amounts of people achieving public service loan forgiveness. But I basically am taking from this, is public service loan forgiveness safe? And prior to COVID, there was a ton of talk on PSLF not surviving the politic world. It's going to get changed. All these proposals are being introduced that are going to blow up the program or dramatically change it. And I'm going to state again, First, all of you that already are in repayment, your borrowers, you went through it all, you're in repayment, you guys are absolutely grandfathered in. Those laws that are being produced or that were being proposed are completely for new borrowers, someone who has never taken out student debt money. The fact that you're already in repayment, you're so far ahead of what the new laws are trying to be tackling, again, prior to COVID, that I don't think there was going to be any issue at all. But if you still had some doubts. Since March, we have had 0% interest and no payments. So if any of you had any doubts that PSLF won't happen, it is happening on a national scale. All student debt, regardless if you're working for a nonprofit or a place in need or not, everyone has no payments and no interest. And to add to that, all those no payments, there's $0 payments. It's like basically you're back as an intern again. But those count for PSLF. This is huge. We have clients that have three, four, five thousand dollar monthly payments that are paying nothing and they're getting credit for PSLF. I mean, this is a huge gift to those of you out there that are in that boat. Even if your payment's a couple hundred bucks, like great. What I'd like you to do is to take that money and to positively increase your net worth. You are already spending that money on debt, take it and pay down other debts. 
or actually contribute to your workplace retirement accounts or your IRAs. But if you had any doubts that PSLF was not going to happen, I think it should be a thought that is long gone right now because COVID is showing that they're able to suspend payments and have zero interest for the entire country. We did a whole show back November of 2019 that we're talking about the PSLF rejection numbers. And if you haven't heard that show, it was called What's Up with Student Debt and PSLF, again in November of 2019. And I was talking with Dr. Ben White. If you haven't heard that show and you are going for PSLF, please go listen to that show. It will make so much more sense on what was happening, the clickbaity headlines with the 99% rejection rates. And really, my thoughts haven't changed since that show in November of 19, about a year ago, other than now COVID has hit and we've seen what they're willing to do for everyone. PSLF and having it be, is this safe or not safe, should be a far distant memory for all of you that are having federal student debt. Our last question comes from Kelly. I like it, so let's do it. Hi, my name is Kelly and I had a question about retirement accounts. I had a 401k with a balance of about $100,000 in it and I left my job to stay home with our children while my husband works as an anesthesiologist. That account has since rolled over to an IRA with Vanguard and is currently invested 100% in their prime money market fund, which has very low returns. And I'm just not sure what I should do with that account. It's an IRA, so I know that leaving it there would limit my ability to ever do the backdoor Roth for myself unless I want to pay kind of taxes on all that money now, which I do not want to do. I I don't think that would be the best decision. I guess it has to stay as an IRA, but I want to know, should I move it from the prime money market fund to something else? But I'm not really sure how I should go about thinking about that. And if I make that move to investing it differently, would I potentially trigger any fees or things that I would need to be careful of? Thank you. All right, Kelly, thank you so much, one, for being a part of the community and calling this question in. So your 401k that you had at your prior work, regardless of the balance, it could have been left potentially at your current employer. And many of you have this going on right now that you've had accounts from all different, from residency and from fellowship or from your first job. You have 401ks and 403bs everywhere. You know that they can be left at any employer, but Kelly, you guys specifically had rolled over, either you or your spouse had rolled over your old account at your old employer and you put it into a traditional rollover IRA at Vanguard. But what you didn't do was you never went back in and invested the money that came over. So I think you said it was about a hundred thousand, the hundred thousand had nowhere to go. It was just sitting there. And so what Vanguard does is it sweeps it to the cash reserves or their money market account. And I want you to understand anyone can go find this. You could literally type in the symbol or even the name into Google and a Morningstar piece will come up or even Vanguard, if this was a Vanguard fund, which it is, will come out and you will be able to click on the link and it'll go deep into what this cash reserve federal money market fund is actually doing, what it's providing. And so this is right from their site. 
Vanguard Cash Reserve's federal money market fund investment objective is to seek to provide current income while maintaining liquidity and a stable share price of $1. The fund invests in at least 99.5% of its total assets in cash or U.S. government securities. So it's not trying to earn you money. It's just trying to basically be there and earn very little on its money over a period of time. It's just a safe place to sweep money and it's not really invested. So I want to make sure that it's clear that the money is not invested. It might as well just be sitting. It can't be, but think of it equivalent, just sitting in your checking account, but not even a high yield checking account. It's just sitting in a checking account. So if you aren't working or you don't have another employer plan to move it to, you really only have a couple options. One is you're going to keep it in that traditional IRA and you're going to invest it. And you're going to invest according to your risk tolerance, whatever that may be. Let's say it was a 65-35 split. You'll go invest in 65% stock and 35% bond, whatever that may be. Or you can convert all of it in 2020 or part of it in 2020 and part of it in a future year to your Roth IRA. Now, Make sure you talk to your CPA as this will have some tax consequences attached to it. You will have to pay tax on the money because it is in a tax deferred account. You received the deduction when you put the money in. So Uncle Sam will want some money back out if you do convert that money. Now, once you start working again, you could move that money into a work plan if that's what you thought you were going to do. And then that would free you up for the backdoor Roth again. But while you have the money In this traditional IRA, you cannot do a backdoor Roth and will not be able to do that unless, one, you're back working and you move it into your new employer, or two, you convert all that money to the Roth and pay the tax, which again, please don't do that unless you talk to your CPA and they agree and they show you how much tax is going to be due because on 100K, it's going to be quite a bit of money. Doesn't mean that it's maybe not the best option, but again, ask your CPA and do that. If you're looking for a new CPA or just a CPA. I know that our firm, we just partnered with John McCarthy, who's a CPA called Physician Tax Advisors, can help you walk through that analysis. But if you have a CPA, please, they need to be your best friend on this. Go talk to them before you convert it. I want to also note that your because you have money in your traditional IRA and you can't do the backdoor Roth, doesn't mean that your spouse couldn't do the backdoor Roth and or they can continue doing it if they don't have tax deferred money like you have in their IRAs. So as long as your spouse doesn't have money in their traditional IRA or SEP, they could be doing the backdoor Ross. And that's because the form 8606 when you're filing your returns is the form that's used to report the Roth conversions. And it is an individual form and it only has one room for one social on it. So your spouse's 8606 will not show any of your non-Roth IRA balances or anything reporting on your side on their 8606 form. But after all it's said and done, go in and get that money invested according to your risk tolerance ASAP. Being at Vanguard, you're not going to incur any trading fees, but you're limited to Vanguard investment options, which by the way is not a bad thing. I'm a huge fan of Vanguard. We use them even though we're at TD Ameritrade's uh, institutional platform for all of our clients at Physician Wealth Services. I like Vanguard and we buy Vanguard funds there. They have $0 costs there. You will not have any trading costs or ticket costs by putting money in, but you do need to go in and invest that money. So please do that. 
But all four of you, thank you so much for being a part of our community, for calling in your questions. I have questions for the next two Monday shows that are recorded via voicemail. I have a crap ton of questions that have been emailed in to me or mentioned in our community, but I really want to prioritize the questions that are getting called in by all of you because I like different voices and I like being able to hear our community. It just makes me feel closer to you guys. And I feel like I'm able to provide even a little more value to you if I can hear your voices and all of us can hear our community's voices. So if you want your question answered by me on air, I'm doing this for the whole month of October. So go to financialresidency.com slash question, record your question, and I will try my best to get it on air for you. And again, I'm trying to limit these shows to about 30 minutes long. So if there's a bunch of short questions, I'll try to hammer out more of those. One of our questions today by Daniel had three questions built in. So it was kind of like we answered seven questions here, but hopefully this is helpful. I love all of you. Thank you so much for being a part of the community. Please, if this show is providing you value at all, it's free. So send it out to all of your other physician friends or their families and their spouses. We want to help as many people as we can feel comfortable about their finances, to take control over their finances, to not shove their head in the sand to be ostriches. We want everyone to be leading the life that they want to live, that ideal life. And it's going to really start with goal planning, life planning, and understanding your finances. Remember, personal finance is personal, so you can't give them advice, but hopefully we can help them on the show going down that path, going down that better financial path. So thank you again so much for being here. I'll see you guys on Friday. Cheers. 